And we now come to the plague coming forth from the trumpet call of the sixth angel. And we happen to be at the ninth chapter of the book of the Revelation, and I read verses 9, 13 through 21. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, and the smoke, and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in your mouth and in your tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the sixth plague, my friends, recorded here by St. John in his Revelation, with the trumpet call of the sixth angel, which is the second woe. It happens to be a much more terrible plague than the previous ones, but let's begin to look at these holy words analytically. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. As you can see, the trumpet call of the sixth angel brings forth the second woe. The plague that follows is more intense and far more destructive than the previous plagues of the five trumpet calls. The main subject of this plague is a horrible war totally unprecedented in history. This plague is characterized by a very intense eschatological dimension. However, this plague has its prelude at every epoch being that all the wars that take place serve as a prelude of this great plague, of this one and great horrible war. The Lord expressed this by the words, you will see and hear wars and rumors of wars. Now, someone may think, and it has been said, that there's nothing new about wars. Wars always existed. 
Now, you would think that with the spreading or the expansion of Christianity, presumably people would stop fighting with each other, and this especially between Christian nations. The gospel would bring the peace of God here on earth. However, the Lord warns that not only peace will be elusive, but there will be wars, and these wars will become progressively greater and greater and more catastrophic up until the point where we come to this horrific war, the epitome of all wars, totally unprecedented in world history, as I repeated earlier. So it seems like we are preparing for this great war, and the last two world wars, the only two in history, serve as the welcome wagon of this great eschatological war described in such a way by the holy evangelist that makes it hard to comprehend and imagine by the human mind. But as you will see, as we continue, the world today possesses all the necessary elements for this to become a reality. The altar and vision by the holy evangelist is the one that Moses saw on Mount Sinai, where he was told to copy, to copy it accurately, which is, in, which is the Ark of the Covenant. It is also the golden altar of the incense. The voice heard from the horns of the four corners of the altar is the voice of God. This happens to be the answer to the prayers of the saints, whose prayers are sent to God as incense, an image that we saw at one of our previous lessons. And what does this voice of God say? This is a unique circumstance here. The same angel who sounds the trumpet to also loosen the four angels who are bound in the area of the Euphrates River. Now, who are these four bound angels? Obviously, they are not those whom we saw in the seventh chapter, verse 1, who are holding the four corners of the earth. They are holding the winds of the earth. Uh, they were instructed to hold back the winds, meaning hold back the destruction so the faithful could be sealed. This is a very nice image showing that the wrath of God is restrained in order for the faithful to be sealed. So there we have an image of another four angels totally unrelated to these four bound angels. These four angels being loosened here are evil demons. They are not good angels. And these four, while being loosened by divine intervention, will help provoke this fierce war, a war that aims to eliminate the life of one-third of the peoples of the earth. One basic characteristic of this sixth plague is the specific topography. Thus far, we saw that the Word of God speaks generally in these plagues. It speaks about the oceans, it speaks about rivers, however, our entire earth has rivers, oceans, and lakes. Here, however, we have a designated place, and this place is in the area of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River, as we know, is found in Asia, in the Near East, and its delta runs into the Persian Gulf. It is a river that irrigates Asia, touches Asia Minor, and runs through today's Iraq. More accurately, it springs forth from the Ararat Mountains of Armenia, same place where the Tiger River comes forth. These two rivers share a common delta in the Persian Gulf. Back in more ancient times, 
these two rivers were separate, but today they have a common delta. They have met because the riverbed of especially large rivers undergoes constant change, and this is true for all rivers. But here's the question. When St. John says that all these things will happen, and he prepares us, he designates the scene, the place, the area of Euphrates River, where this awesome war will be carried out, the question is, is this a real place or noetic or symbolic, much like Babylon? Babylon is noetic. In the verses to follow, much reference will be made to Babylon, the great city, the prostitute. But today, as we know, Babylon does not exist as a city. However, the ethos and the mindset and the mentality of the city is carried inside history, and all interpreters say that when the holy evangelist, when he was writing about the prostitute, the great, who deceives the world, etc., he was speaking about Rome, the Rome of that time period. But it is not limited to Rome, and at each different century, each different time, it is something else, and later on, something else. At times, it can be an entire nation that behaves like the Babylon, especially if one keeps in mind that this ancient city of Babylon was a nation. Later on, when its kings expanded its territories, then it became the capital of the empire, naturally. However, just like in ancient Greece, we had city-states. Likewise, before Babylon became an empire, it was a city-state the city-state of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was instrumental in reforming and developing this city and expanding it to a vast empire. A vast and very wealthy empire indeed. However, Babylon today does not exist, and this does not mean that the words of the Revelation are irrelevant or inapplicable today. Not to mention that Babylon was snuffed out of existence long before John was rewriting about her in his revelation. So perhaps Euphrates River is not a specific place, but some noetic place somewhere on earth. This we cannot answer very easily. We need to add that Euphrates is one of the great rivers of paradise mentioned in the Holy Scripture, being that God placed paradise in the midst of four rivers. Tigris, Phison, Gion, and Euphrates. What are these rivers, Phison and Gion? We cannot be sure. And we cannot expand on this at the present time, although some claim these two to be the Nile River and the Indian River, along with much other conjecturing, really expanding and stretching the territory of paradise greatly, but they could also be tributaries of these two rivers. Again, we don't know this for sure. One thing we do know is that in that specific territory, the historical place of paradise, I said historical and not noetic, the specific Garden of Eden was placed. I believe that all of you are aware that paradise was here on earth. It was not noetic or sensual but a real paradise, a real garden, 
However, when the grace of God was lifted, certainly after that, it is no longer paradise. And if you happen to read about this area today, even though it is still quite fertile, it remains very depressing from a scenic point of view. The general area enclosed between these two great rivers, if you ever look up information about this, you will see it is not a very pretty sight. In reality, it is very bad and full of disease-causing insects. And to think that this was the location of paradise, which shows that paradise was truly taken away. In the aftermath, paradise became noetic. In other words, when the souls and when the faithful leave this present life, Abel, for example, he lived next to paradise along with his parents, but after he died, he went to Hades, and there he was awaiting the Redeemer. Christ descended with his human soul, united with divinity, of course, because the body was on the cross and later on in a tomb, and there Christ created paradise. And from that point on, paradise does exist as the place of the righteous who are awaiting the resurrection of the dead. In essence, they are waiting to become reattached with their bodies. Now, why must destruction take place exactly where the first human beings took up residence? Someone must possess a deep theological mind to answer this, and this happens to be one of the mysteries of God. Along the length of this river, as you can see, we are doing a little search on this here. So along the length of this river, some great and famous cities were established, like Babylon, a very well-known city by the name of Akeda, with its own Akkadic alphabet. We have the city of Or, the country of Abraham. These were great ancient cities. St. Andrew of Caesarea and Arethas, after this, will tell us that perhaps the Antichrist will emanate from this territory, from the Jews who were expatriated as slaves during the 6th century BC, and they never returned. They stayed there, and perhaps the Antichrist will come forth from them. There's a certain testimony about this in the book of the Revelation itself, and they extract this interpretation from there. No matter what we say, the fact is that Euphrates River seems to connect itself with the past and with the historical aspect that I presented you up to now. However, it is not absolutely necessary to connect itself with this past, but to simply be mentioned as a real place of a spectacular and formidable battle zone. We are somehow trying to understand the prophecies of the future in relation to those which have already been fulfilled. I will bring up one prophecy that says and states, There were the feet of God stood. This is an Old Testament prophecy, and uh, it just came to my mind, and I will share it with you as an example. For an interpreter of the Old Testament prophecies, B.C., someone who lived before Christ, this would be inconceivable that the feet of God could possibly stand on the earth. And yet, my friends, the Son of God became man, and his feet stood upon the earth. However, no matter what kind of interpretation they would offer back then, allegorical, if you will, 
The fact is that they could never touch this thing, the reality of this letter that says, whose feet stood. The feet of Christ stood, walked on the earth. As you can see, very often prophecies move along this way. Or the other one from prophet Baruch, which says, and he lived with the people, that God appeared and lived among the people. Now here, as people of the Old Testament, we could offer a number of interpretations, but not the obvious one, the interpretation according to the letter. Now, how would God exactly live with his people? How would he do this? How would he live with them? Now, if they would tell us, how can you interpret this? We would tell them, listen, God lived so close to people, he became so close with them, that he ate bread and salt with the people. What are you saying? You are unrealistic, they would exclaim. But I beg your pardon, doesn't the book of the Acts state exactly this? St. Peter says in one of his talks, we ate and drank with him. And Jesus was sinalizomenos with them, as the Greek says, a Greek expression that literally means I ate bread and salt with him. But it is figurative speech, and it means to share a meal with someone, to eat together. But it shows a, a very, very close relationship. When we say we ate bread and salt with that person, it shows great proximity. Now, just imagine, and please try to place yourselves in the years of the Old Testament. So let's try to place ourselves back then, and let's try to understand these prophecies. If we needed to give precise interpretations which pertain to locality and to the lifestyle and to our customs upon our earth, what kind of interpretation would it give? Well, they would be considered totally unrealistic. However, they were not at all unrealistic in their fulfillment because the Son of God became truly human. Now, why must we treat the prophecies of the future, those who belong to the future, in relation to us, why must we treat every prophecy like it belongs to a nebulous scenario? When it says Euphrates, why can't we take it for what it is? It says Euphrates, so it must be that, Euphrates. Of course, we will not be absolute. We are not totally sure about this. But the text says Euphrates River. So we can use a literal interpretation. The area of Euphrates River, the area of Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq. Now, of course, this does not exclude the neighboring state of Persia, the country of Iran. Now, I'm offering all these things up to your discretion, knowing, of course, that no one is infallible here. We are not prophets. And for a prophecy to be solved, a prophet is needed once again. Someone with the gift of interpretation of prophecies. Because of this difficulty, all those who have attempted to interpret the book of the Revelation proceed to do so with a great deal of caution. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The four angels were loosened. Those who were prepared for the specific hour, the day, the month, and the year, to kill one-third of the people of the earth. 
this expression of time in an ascending scale is quite impressive here. It begins with the hour, and then it goes to the day, it advances to the month, and it reaches the year. This is of great interest to us. It wants to show that the decision of God is unalterable and terminal. That which God said will definitely take place. It is absolute. But this timely precision also shows the execution of this plague to the last detail. When it states the hour, the day, the month, and the year, it shows that everything is defined and programmed, and it shows that whatever is prophesied will be carried out in its full detail. Naturally, this does not concern this plague only, but it stands true for the entire book of the Revelation and for all the prophecies of the Holy Scripture. We also observe, based on this verse, that one-third of the people of the earth to be killed, which shows how murderous this battlefront must be. Assuming that today, 1982, today's earth population measures four and a half billion people, in other words, four and a half thousand million, one-third of this number amounts to 1.5 billion. So when this prophecy says that one-third of the earthly population will be killed according to today's standards, this is a very high number. 1.5 billion people will lose their lives. Especially if we take into account, and this, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, if we take into account that the casualties of World War II seems to me that they were around 50 million. So here we're talking about 30 times more destructive, a war that'll claim 30 times more lives compared to those killed in World War II. This is an astronomical number. But let's pay attention to this detail. The dynamics behind this great massacre exist today. And the size of this destruction, this awesome massacre, boggles one's mind. The fact is that with today's standards, it is very easy for these people to be killed. And this in one day, if you will. I don't even think a full day is necessary to wipe out one and a half billion people. This can take place in less than a day. Let's not forget that we now have the prerequisites and the dynamics to accomplish this. And the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. So the number of the cavalry was 200 million, 20,000 times 10,000. I heard the number. The Holy Evangelist comes to give us details from this spectacular battle of his vision. As you may have surmised, it talks about horses, soldiers on horses, cavaliers, because the Greek says the number of the horsemen. But as you'll find out from the continuation of this description, it does not mean real horses, the actual animals, but even though uh, it maintains the name cavalry, as we will see next, it has to do with horrific uh, automated machines of war. We could say armored war machines or the formidable tank. 
the horses today have been replaced by motorized armored vehicles or artillery. And in our Greek army, even though horses are not used, the same titles of the officers of cavalry has been preserved, even though, again, horses have been replaced by automated vehicles. And since the book of the Revelation was written in the Greek language, I believe we can gain much insight and solve many puzzling points by using our Greek language. Our generation, unfortunately, we, the modern-day Greeks, are acting as the undertakers of this language. We are slowly preparing the funeral of this Greek language, and we need to be aware that the 666, which is the number of the name of the Antichrist, it will be counted by using the Greek alphabet and not the Latin. The Greek alphabet, which is now undermined and in the four stages of being replaced by the Latin characters or the English characters. So now we have heavy artillery, a division of armed forces, the armored machinery or tanks, and this has replaced the cavalry, the old combat troops mounted on horses. However, the titles of the officers have been preserved in the Greek army. We also see that the number of the horsemen was 200 million. Now, what are we to imagine or think here? Is it talking about the number of the horses or the riders? Apparently, if we consider that one horse has only one rider, take it as you will. The fact is that in all likelihood, the soldiers rather number 200 million. This great number is very puzzling to us. This is an impressive number. Perhaps the holy evangelist wishes to be one step ahead of us when we may question, could this be some mistake, some typo, some typographical error? As you know, in some of the scriptural texts, some mistakes were introduced in the process of copying. And this especially in the area of numbers and in the Old Testament, where someone could say, well, this could be the result of a copying mistake. Or could this simply be an allegorical or figurative number? If you look into some other older interpretations, they are apparently speaking about a figurative number. That's why the holy evangelist is quick to add, I heard their number. I heard. On the one hand, to show us that he did not count them. I mean, how could he? And on the other hand, to assure us that this is the number, because assuming that this was a small number, then there would be no need to say that I heard the number of these soldiers. My friends, when the book of the Revelation was being written, this number was inconceivable, simply unimaginable, but not today. Assuming that this confrontation can take place in the area of Mesopotamia, China alone can produce a 200 million men army. China alone. Now, if you take into account that China's population today exceeds 1 billion people, 1,000 million people, if we take one-fifth of this number as potential soldiers, we immediately have the potential of 200 million soldiers. China alone has the ability to produce this size of an army, 
and the neighboring countries could even surpass this. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. So I saw these horses in my vision, he says, and those riding the horses to have breastplates, red, blue, and yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and fire and smoke and sulfur was coming out of their mouths. As you can see, the Holy Evangelist proceeds to offer a complete detailed description of the spectacular image of his vision. He makes a clear distinction between horses and riders, and he says that the horses and their riders have the same breastplates. So as a first point here, we can see that horses and riders have the same breastplates. The breastplate is characteristic of the ancient fighters, an iron contraption designed to protect this area of the chest cavity from the spear or the arrow or the sword of the enemy. So here is this first point. Horses and riders have breastplates. The horse and the rider has a breastplate. But now watch. These 200 million, the number of the breastplates of these horses and the riders have a differentiation in color. The horse and the rider have the same color. However, not all the horses with their riders have the same color. This is very natural from an initial point of view, of course. For example, when we watch two sports teams playing soccer, football, they use different color uniforms. So we can differentiate the one team from the other. So the one team was red and the other green. So if we could see these players playing, we would notice that half of them are red and the other half green or blue or yellow or some different colors. So here we see three clearly different interacting teams. St. John names them red, blue, and yellow. Red, blue, and yellow are the three colors that correspond to the three analogous camps. I ask, I wonder, do they have something to remind us? Who are the red? Who are the red? Who are the yellow? And who are the blue? Could it be that they represent the Russian, the Chinese, and the Western world? We also notice that the heads of the horses look like heads of lions. This is symbolic of power. Could they be the armored tanks, the modern-day artillery? From the mouth of these idiomorphic horses proceeds fire, smoke, and sulfur. In a way, these three preceding elements relate to the three colors we just talked about. The smoke corresponds to blue, the fire to red, and the sulfur to yellow. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths for their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm.
So from these three plagues, one-third of the people were killed from the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that come out of their mouths, out of the mouths of these very peculiar horses. And this because the power of these horses is in their mouth, but in their tails as well. For their tails are like serpents, like snakes, having heads, and with them they do damage, they do harm. As the Holy Evangelist says here, we have a certain specialization within this sixth plague. Here we're talking about one plague, the sixth plague. And then we have these three plagues. We have a specialization of these plagues referring to the three elements of fire, of smoke, and of brimstone. And from these three, one-third of mankind is killed. This may have to do with three different methods resulting in a destruction of the people. When fire is being mentioned, for example, this may designate those who will be killed by the falling of atomic bombs, nuclear weapons. When it says sulfur, this could be chemical warfare used in conjunction with or used to complete the work of the nuclear warfare. Seemingly, he's speaking about three plagues, but in actuality, we have one plague with the final results being obtained by three different methods. These peculiar horses have tails like serpents, and they have heads. Apparently, these have to do with armored vehicles or tanks, which strike from the front and from the rear of the vehicle. Because they do damage, they destroy from their mouths and their tails. This is so characteristic of our contemporary armored tanks. It can strike from the front and from the back. But let's pay attention to something important here. My friends, hopefully from everything we have said, we hope that you can understand one thing. That all the constituents of this plague are possible today. Listen carefully. All the pieces, all the prerequisites for the enactment of this plague, nuclear artillery is at hand. An army of 200 million soldiers can easily be assembled, and as I told you, China alone can accomplish this. The very region of Mesopotamia and the general area of the Middle East with its oil reserves and its strategic position seems to be very volatile today very confrontational to say the least. What does this all mean? What is the meaning of this play? Could it be that a worldwide confrontation is to be awaited in this region? I state all these things with a question mark. I cannot give a definite answer. Again, could it be that we ought to await this terrible confrontation, this unprecedented confrontation with unrivaled strategic dimensions in world history, the battle of all battles in this region of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, 
for their thefts. My friends, what is the outcome of this plague on the impious people? Total estrangement and unrepentance. This condition brings to mind the hardened Pharaoh who was increasingly hardened during the succession of each plague. His repentance was skin deep. And after each plague, under the state of fear, he told Moses and Aaron, I sinned before your God and before you. Please receive therefore the acknowledgement of my sin and pray to the Lord your God to take away from me this deadly plague, to take away the evil of each plague. Did you see what the Pharaoh was saying? He repeated this during every plague. And unfortunately, we must confess that we are usually guilty of this pharaonic type of repentance. When something of a plague strikes a region, a war, a certain catastrophe, we repent. When this danger subsides, then we forget everything. It seems clear, especially clear here, that punishment alone, regardless of how harsh it may be, does not always bring about repentance if one more factor does not exist. And this factor is the grace of God. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the good disposition, especially this last one, the good proeresis. When the Pharaoh would see his magicians perform some poor imitations of Moses' plagues, he did what? He did not believe in God. He went back to take counsel to reconsider how not to allow the Hebrews to ever leave Egypt again. The same thing happens with us. How do most people explain a miracle of God as something coincidental or natural? Or if you will, they even give it spiritist dimensions. But my friends, let's look at the content matter of this unrepentance. Watch. As the scripture says, they did not repent of their murders, their idolatries or sorceries, their thefts, etc. We see here that the Holy Evangelist refers to the specific violation of the first, second, sixth, and seventh commandment. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So you shall, you shall have no other gods except me. Second commandment, you shall not make unto yourself an idol, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. The sixth commandment, do not commit adultery. The seventh commandment, do not steal. It is known that all the commandments are dependent upon the first one and this whether in matters of application or violation. This is precisely why, my friends, the truth about God must be preserved. Theology is not some fruitless vocation or merely scholasticism, but the beginning of all the commandments, even salvation itself. When we speak about God, we cannot be nonchalant. We can't claim that even though we don't know very many things, we will be okay. Knowledge of God is not very necessary, some people think. 
But this knowledge of God maintains and preserves the keeping of the first commandment, where God says, you shall have no other gods. God wants us to be exclusively his. You shall have no other gods except me, he says. It is common knowledge that man has strong tendencies towards idolatry, and consequently he is in great need at every moment to be protected and preserved from this deep and true knowledge of God. We need to bring to mind the very characteristic description given to us by St. Paul of the consequences regarding the violation, especially of these two commandments, which refer to God. He describes for us the condition or the plight of the ancient world in the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans. And this because the ancient world was like this when the gospel found it. But something else, the Christian world today has become what it was before it came to know the gospel. Did you listen to what I just said? The gospel found a vile ancient world and it made a Christian and this Christian world became vile all over again. It has denied the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will only read this for you because we don't have enough time to explain it. And we'll find this in the first chapter of Romans, verses 21 to 32. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things, idolatry. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Here, Holy Apostle Paul refers to lesbianism. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. This verse pertains to the plight of homosexuality, which intelligent people today consider a normal lifestyle, God forbid. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Ridiculous things, in other words being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, 
proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What a catalog of the ancient world. But here's also the catalog of the modern, contemporary Western Christian world. It is the same. Thus we see that idolatry and the loose lifestyle are indispensably connected. But the modern Christian went one step beyond compared to the ancient world. The gospel found the ancient world living in idolatry. But today, the Christians took a step, an audacious step, an audacious leap, surpassing the ancient world. From idolatry, they jumped over to atheism. The phenomenon of atheism did not exist in the ancient world. However, it certainly exists in today's modern world. Consequently, today's world is far worse from every previous world, from every previous state, because it denied Christ its Savior. St. Peter refers to this at the beginning of the second chapter found in his second epistle. And even denying the Master who bought them, the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing unto themselves quick destruction, and many of them will continue after their filthy living because of whom the way of the truth will be blasphemed. The way of the truth is the gospel. The gospel will be blasphemed by the very lifestyle of these loose Christians who became so very many, so very many so-called Christian churches who are now ordaining and elevating homosexuals as bishops. Translators addition, I'm sure the elder would have, have much to say about this, being that 22 years ago when these talks were being given, we still didn't have the plight of homosexual bishops accepted by so-called Christian churches. Very loose Christians indeed. And because today, my friends, we are rebelling against God, the living God, the disobedience to his commandments will bring about the decomposition of our societies. The Holy Evangelist here refers to murder, fornication, theft, and sorcery as representatives of the overall commandments. So first of all, murder. History has never seen such low regard for human life as today. Even though we hypocritically raise our voice about human rights, anarchy, rioting, murders by professional hitmen, the torturing of Christians worldwide, murderous wars, the indifference of the health and the life of millions of people in the pollution of the environment, adulteration of food and pharmaceuticals, etc. All these things which fall under the category of direct and indirect murder are on the rise today. Second, fornication. 
under this general term, fornication, there's an entire web of immorality, licentiousness, licentious acts which will make the honorable men turn red from embarrassment if they would be specified. We have become a society of Sodom and Gomorrah, my friends, and today we are shy to say that you don't do certain filthy, sinful acts considered normal by the world. You are embarrassed to say that you don't do what everybody else considers normal. A young lady is embarrassed to mention that she does not have a boyfriend or that she's still a virgin. Likewise, a young man is embarrassed to admit that he's keeping himself pure. It is so uncool not to experience immorality. Why? Because this evil has gotten progressively worse. It is so widespread. It flows everywhere. It has spilled all over the streets, and the abnormal is accepted as normal, the unnatural as perfectly natural, then sinful as something very fun and exciting. And the pure, the self-control, the chaste, the wise and the prudent man is now considered to be outside of today's reality and normalcy. But the philology of immorality, such as television shows and movies, adult movies, pictures, science fiction, all these have surpassed all prerequisites, but theft as well. It is interesting how it is stated in the plural. They did not repent from their thefts, plural, multiple thefts. My friends, the presence of theft designates the absence of love and respect of a man for his fellow men. It shows selfishness, self-gratification, lack of faith, and many other syndromes. Today, everyone steals. Stealing has become a science, and this from the workers of the church as well, from people posing as pastors and preachers. Sacrilege of this sort is unrivaled today. But today, if people die from hunger, listen to some figures, this year, 1982, 17 million people will die, 10 million children from the lack of food. This is the lofty theft of the earthly goods controlled and withheld by the selfish interests of a few nations who extract their wealth by using the other nations at the expense of the poor third world countries. And finally, sorcery, which is a constituent of idolatry and a substitute of faith. Today, people are ready to believe every stupidity, all nonsense. You can get them to believe just about anything except the true God. Someone in our years was saying that in Egypt, everything was deified. The river Nile, the crocodiles, the sun, the moon, the mice, the cats, except the true God. We have the same thing today. Today's men can easily accept anything and everything. He can accept everything as real, even the most nonsensical and paradox and ill imaginings, he can accept as reality. Everything except the true God and the gospel. This demonization brought forth by sorcery has led people to be demonized and demon ruled in such a great scale enough to make us weep. Never before 
has the world seen so many demon-stricken people? My friends, the world today can be presented with the image of the paralytic of Bethesda, bedridden, paralyzed, incapable of becoming well. However, there's one difference with the paralytic of Bethesda. He asked to become well, but our modern world wishes to stay in its corruption and in its unrepentance. This is the huge difference in this state of unrepentance being the result of the sixth plague, according to St. John. Precisely this lack of repentance will bring forth the remaining two woes. But when that happens, my friends, then may God have mercy on us. Mercy has led people to, to be demon-ruled in such a great scale enough to make us weep. Never before has the world seen so many demon-stricken people. My friends, the world today can be presented with the image of the paralytic of Bethesda, bedridden, paralyzed, incapable of becoming well. However, there's one difference with the paralytic of Bethesda. He asked to become well, but our modern world wishes to stay in its corruption and in its unrepentance. This is the difference. The modern world likes to be fallen. It loves its state of unrepentance. And this state of unrepentance, being the result of the sixth plague according to St. John, precisely this lack of repentance will bring forth the remaining two woes. But when that happens, my friends, then may God have mercy on us.